0: Let's pray together as we go to his word uh, and read it together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. God, we pray now that our time in these four verses would be a time that would be both edifying and convicting. God, this would be a moment in which we as your people are convinced of a similar calling upon our own lives of that of Paul and Barnabas. God, I pray that we would not read ourselves into the text, but Father, we would see principles within it that would then uh, speak to us through your Spirit to call us to do what you are calling each and every one of us to do. That is to make God's, make uh, your name made clear to those around us as we proclaim the gospel, and God, that maybe even specific callings on each of our own lives. We love you, and we thank you. In your Son's perfect and holy name, amen. So as we look at this together, um, I just want to read it uh, first and foremost. And so let's go to it. Let's go through it together. As Nick will change the slides for me. Now there uh, were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Yeah, why did it say thirteen? Oh, thir- Okay, I got it. That threw me off. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Syria. Manian, and a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In this, I'm sorry, and so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Caesarea, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. All right, so these are the four verses, but as we get into the concept of it, I do want to take just a moment and just kind of catch us up with kind of where we've been as a church over this last year, uh, just in case uh, you're not overly aware or just as a reminder to each and every one of us, okay? So starting off on January the 1st this year, David actually preached the very first chapter, uh, part of chapter 1 of Acts. And when we looked at that together, we went all the way through chapter 12, verse 25. And in walking through these, uh, this book of Acts together, we then took a break um, and looked for nine weeks at the doctrine of who is God. Then after that, David, alongside of Sam Ivy, preaching one sermon, preached through Philippians over the last five weeks or so. And uh, I'm really thankful for David and his ability and willingness to step in and preach that to us, as well as Sam aiding him in that. But I'm also very just willing and thankful to be here and preaching again. Uh, since I left Spring Hill, actually, I have not went five weeks without preaching, and until I took the job at Spring Hill, it had been five years before I went that long without preaching as well. And so I'm excited to be preaching the Word of God again to you guys here at Redeemer for the encouragement and building up of the saints. And as we get into it... um, One, I'm going to have to dust off uh, some dirt here and kind of get my legs back underneath me here in preaching. Um, But two, I just want to just lay out some important things about Acts because it has been 14 weeks since we've been in Acts. And I think there's some things you have to remember about the book of Acts as a whole as we try to interpret it together in understanding the context of what is going on here, okay? And so first and foremost, as you would read in Acts chapter 1, Luke is writing this as a Second volume, you may not read all of this in one, but you're going to see in a moment what you would read in 1 1. But Luke is writing this as a second volume as a historical work documenting the work of God in the early church, either to an individual named Theopolis or to a group of people named Theopolis. Now, what I mean by that is he's either writing specifically to a, a certain individual, and that is his name, Theopolis. Or you could take a different approach and you could look at the interpretation in the definition of the name Theopolis, meaning friend of God, that Luke was writing this on, as a, just a general work of literature to the people of God, the friends of God. I personally fall under the first persuasion that he is writing this to a particular individual that would have been a higher class individual in the Roman society. So the reason why that's important is this isn't a standalone letter or a standalone book. This is a second volume, and Luke is the first volume. This is the second volume. In Luke, he's laying out what is the gospel and laying out what Christ did there in his earthly ministry. And then in Acts, he's looking at the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church as the gospel was proclaimed in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so that's the other aspect that we have to understand when approaching the book of Acts, and that is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Flip over with me to that verse. I'm going to read it to you, and you may even know it pretty well. But Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' commissioning. This is Luke's account of it. We read Matthew's account every Sunday as we depart together uh, into the depart and leave one another into the worlds in which we live. Um, we read Matthew's account of the Great Commission. This is Luke's account in Acts. But it's very specific here in which Jesus is calling his his people to do something. He's calling them to be His witnesses where, though? In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, but not, not in their own power or their own ability, but in the ability in the power that would be given to them by the Spirit as the Spirit fell upon them, in which we see unfolding in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and then later in other regions in following chapters. Why is that important when looking at the entirety of Acts? Is because Acts is laid out in that progression. Is that it begins with the work of the Spirit in the life of the early church and the disciples and apostles in the work of Jerusalem. And then we see a progression into all of Judea. And then we see a progression into Samaria. And then we see finally a progression to the end of the earth in their context. And during our time in the first 12 chapters of Acts, we saw the power of the Spirit guiding those who made up the church of Jerusalem to be Christ's witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, which led us here at Redeemer to focus on some very important things. First and foremost, the dependency upon God displayed an active prayer of the early church. We saw them depending upon God and that being displayed in their prayer and commitment to prayer to God as a reliance for them. We then saw the supernatural work of God through the empowerment and leadership of the Holy Spirit. Multiple times, Peter and other individuals standing up and proclaiming the gospel or going, therefore, and proclaiming the gospel with an amazing power and leadership that did not come among themselves or within themselves, but through the work of God and the Spirit of God. The third thing we really focused on was the work of the early church to proclaim the gospel and making disciples as individuals and as a church as a whole. Now, why does all of that matter? Is because when we stopped at Acts chapter 12, we stopped at this part in Acts chapter 1-8. See, it says, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And what we stopped at was in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And in Acts chapter 13, we are now picking up where the early church is now taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, we're going to see them come back to Jerusalem in 15 for the Jerusalem council. But they're coming back because there's a misunderstanding within the Jerusalem church of how the Gentiles were to play a part into the church of God. And we may see time in and time out where there's a back and forth of Jerusalem and things of that nature, but that's not the focus anymore. The focus of Luke in in looking at what God was doing was no longer in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but the ends of the earth. And we're going to see that pictured now in verse, in chapter 13. But for that to make even more sense, let's look at chapter 12, 24 and 25. Chapter 12, 24 and 25, it says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. This was after Peter's um, a re- a miraculous release from prison through the work of an angel in his life. After Peter and James, had, um, not Peter and James, after James had already been killed for his faith. 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with him John, whose other name was Mark. I don't respect you expect you guys to remember this about 12, 24, and 25, but this was a hard passage to interpret. Interpret because when you look at John at Acts chapter 12 24 and 25 it was talking about they brought funds from the church of Antioch to the people of Jerusalem because there was a famine that hit the land but most likely this was an out of order situation here where this this event had not happened at the same point in which John uh, Peter had left Jerusalem for a period of time. This would have happened later, almost to the point of even chapter 14. And so what Luke was doing at the end of chapter 12, in verses 24 and 25, he's bringing um, Barnabas and Paul back into the picture as a work of literature here to accompany this so that he could then flow into chapter 13 of the going therefore and making disciples therefore in the ends of the world, Okay. And so I know this may not make a lot of sense right now because it has been 15 weeks, but what we see in here is a transition in a focus upon Peter and the Church of Jerusalem to a focus upon Paul and the Church of Antioch and a new mission arm of the early Church in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. See in John chapter one through John, I mean Acts chapter one through Acts twelve twenty three there's a key focus of Peter and the church of Jerusalem. And what we saw, and what we see here in 13 on, or 12, 24 on, is that focus is no longer there, but the focus is on the church of Antioch and then the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, with that being said, I think as we look at these four verses... I think the main point that we're going to see is that Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the church of Antioch by the leadership of the Holy Spirit after much worship, fasting, and prayer to proclaim the Word of God to the ends of the earth. I would repeat that because that was pretty quick, but I want to word it just a slightly different way for the sake of our format of the sermon here. Is that Paul and Barnabas... Are commissioned by the church of Antioch, a local church, by the leadership of the Spirit to make disciples to all nations. That's why, as you look on the screen, you see the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas. And to make these points clear, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at this sermon, these four verses, in three sections. We're going to look at commissioned by the Holy Spirit in verses one and two. We're going to look at commission by the church leaders and the church in verse 3. And then we're going to look at obedience to the commissioning in verse 4. Now, I'm going to give this preface again later, but really 4 through 12 should be preached with 1 through 3. But I wanted to give this background here. So instead of preaching for an hour, I figured I would only preach 4 verses. And then we could tackle the the remaining part next Sunday. So to begin with, let's look at verses 1 and 2 as we approach this idea of being commissioned by the Holy Spirit. Commissioned by the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch. Now there were in the church at Antioch. Now, we're going to look at the rest of that in just a moment. But the reason why I say it like that, and I don't talk a lot of Greek and things of that nature, even though I may get something on my body that's in Greek in a little bit uh, this week. Uh, but there's this particular word here used for the word church. And it's really a form of the word of es- uh, ecclesia, but it's ecclesian, which would mean the church in that place or a local church. And the reason why that's important is, It's because there's this distinction made, as I've already said, between the church of Jerusalem and the church of Antioch or the church at Antioch, as the scripture would say here. So there were in the church at Antioch, this local gathering of of people of God in Antioch, this local church, just like this is a local church and just like First Baptist up the road is a local church or... New Journey in New Hope is a local church, or Redeemer in Sartville is a local church, or Starkville Community Church in Sartville is a local church, or like Academy Baptist in Vernon is a local church. This was a particular local church that was made up of leadership that consisted of prophets and teachers. Now, I don't want to make a distinction this morning between that of prophets and teachers, Uh, I just want to simply uh, note that I would say that there is a connection between those two roles and the roles of a teacher, preacher, prophet, all of those things. Um, But there is a moment in the early church where I do think there's different giftings than we see today. Um, Not necessarily in all times, in all places, but particularly that we see a particular reality happening in the early church that God was doing something special in their day and time. With all that being said, though, this does remind me of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. That we see that this church in Antioch was made up of prophets and teachers. And Paul, later writing to the church of Ephesus, gives this idea here about apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. He says this in Ephesians four, eleven and 12. And he gave them apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what we see going on here is there's this local church that is gathering together, but not just the whole church is gathering in this moment. We're going to get there in just a moment. But we see that in this local church, there's these prophets and teachers. And what their role and what their job would have been was to prepare the saints for the work of ministry. And I just want to reflect just very briefly here is that my job as a pastor and elder here at Redeemer isn't to be the primary agent of change in Redeemer's life or the life of Columbus or in in any discipleship relationships, but rather to equip the saints here to do the work of ministry. We're going to get to some of those things much later on. But we see that this church is gathered, these church leaderships is making up this church, this local congregation of prophets and teachers. But let's let's look at who they are. Barnabas, we saw much about Barnabas in Acts already. He was the son of encouragement. Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Seneir, Menaean, a lawful friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And Saul. So, why are all of those names important? We don't know all of them. We've seen some of them. We've seen Barnabas. We've seen Simeon. We've seen Menaean. We've seen Saul, or as we know him as Paul, later in the book of Acts, um, really starting in the the rest of chapter 13. But I think there's some things we should highlight about these men because I think there's something that it teaches us about the transcending nature of the gospel in the life of the church, in, in the life of believers. So Barnabas was from Cyprus, so a particular region. Simeon, called Niger, was most likely from Africa since Niger means black. Lucius of Syria was a northern African area. Menaean was an intimate friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, which was the ruler of Galilee when Jesus was born. So Menaean was from Galilee. And then you have Paul that is from Tarsus. So what you have represented here in these five individuals that make up the leadership of the church is some diversity. First and foremost, some ethnic diversity, most surely. Um, being some are Jewish in background, some are G- Galilean, which is poor, but also in the same vein of things connected to a, a leader of the day and time. So there's a, a, a significance there, a status quote there. We see some from northern Africa, some from probably the southern African area, some from Cyprus, the, the, the gospel transcends all areas of life where it does not matter the differences of the individuals because the only thing that matters is the commonality that is found in Christ. And that is displayed in the leadership of the church of Antioch, which is significant because the church of Antioch, was a, the Antioch itself was a diverse area. This would be an awesome thing to see in the life of our church in the life of churches all around. Whereas individuals come to know Christ and are developed and discipled and called into service, that we would see leadership reflecting that of the community around us. It's not something that should be forced, but something that should be sought after in the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. So we see some significant things there. But I think the two things that we should focus on here is the two guys that's a, a focus, and that is Barnabas and Paul. In Acts chapter 11, 25 through 26, it tells us this, that So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him and brought him to Antioch for a whole year, they were met with the church and taught great many. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now why is that significant? It's because Paul and Barnabas had already been developed and and kind of developed as a character in this storyline in the book of Acts as teachers of the church of Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas are certainly the teacher, two of at least the teachers mentioned in chapter chapter 13, verse 1. But we also see later in chapter 13, in 9 through 11, this moment in which Paul is displaying the power of that of a prophet. 9 through 11 says, but Saul, who was called Paul, we see that name change there, that significance, because his mission field changed. He's no longer going to the Jew, but going to the Gentile. So he's no longer going by a Jewish name, but a Gentile name, a Roman name that meant little one, one of little significance, which is significant for us because we know of Paul as a great significance. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And we're going to get into why he's looking at this guy intently and why he says what he says here. And he says, "'You son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold the hand of the Lord upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time.'" Immediately, the midst of the darkness fell upon him, and he went out seeking the people who led him by the hand. Now, we're going to get to why this guy is blinded by Paul in this moment next week. But what's significant here is we see this moment in which Paul is calling out a false prophet by prophesying something that was going to come to him. So regardless of this role being separate or together, we see that Paul is both teacher and prophet, and it's displayed in earlier parts of Acts and in the future parts of Acts. But if you go on, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now, it says while they were worshiping, and maybe when you read this, your first thought is by the word they. It is speaking that of the church of Antioch. But most likely, it is not talking about that. Most likely, he's talking of the context of the leaders in which it just mentioned. So most likely, what's going on here is that Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Paul were gathered together as five leaders of the church of Antioch, and they were worshiping the Lord together and fasting together. And fasting would have been accompanied with prayer, as we see common throughout the New Testament and even the Old Testament. So these religious leaders of the church of Antioch, these church leaders, are gathered together in some form or another, and they're worshiping the Lord together. They're fasting. That means they're taking away food from their lives so that their dependency is not upon that of their own ability or the ability of those around them, but a dependency upon the Lord, and they're praying and they're seeking out what the God would have for them. And look what happens in this moment of worship and fasting and prayer. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, there's two likely situations here. Okay. First, that one or two of the prophets mentioned before. So most likely, it's a possibility here, Simeon or Lucius Or Menaean, one of those three guys, are publicly saying this is what the Spirit of God is saying. Or, the second possibility here is that God, through the work of the Spirit, laid it on the hearts of each of these men to set Barnabas and Saul aside for this particular calling on their lives. We don't know which one's the case. We were not there. It would have been cool to be there, but we were not there, Right? But what what we should recognize and what we should know is that when you look at other places in the book of Acts, and even the New Testament, but particularly the book of Acts, that's where our time is. In Acts chapter 8, verse 29, it says, And the Spirit said to Philip, talking about the Holy Spirit, said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. And then in Acts chapter 10, verse 19, and it says, While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. So we see this interaction of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer where it led and guided individuals specifically for certain callings upon their lives. So we don't know if it was one individual that stood up and said, this is what the Spirit is saying, or if God put it on all five of their hearts. But we have no reason to doubt that this was a work of the Spirit in the life of these men to call these two particular men to go for a particular calling in their lives. So what does he go on to say? The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. Now, we don't really know much about Barnabas' particular calling at this point. But we know much of Paul's. See, in Acts chapter 9, 5 and 6, and then I'm going to jump to 15 and 16, this is Paul's conversion story. He says, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Paul, being saved, blinded, goes into the city, and then 9 15, nine, fifteen through sixteen. And but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and our children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is a moment in which Paul, which God is speaking to Ananias, the one that would pray over Paul, that would cause the, the scales to fall off his eyes. And in this reluctancy to go to this murderer and pray over him, God gives him an encouragement, and his encouragement is plain and it's simple. He says, and when you have found him, he brought him to Antioch. I'm sorry, I, I looked at the wrong verse. Plain and clear, And what does God say to him? Go, for he is my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name where? Before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Certainly he would go before the children of Israel, but the particular calling was before the Gentiles and the kings. That this was Paul's calling. So much so that when you look in Philippians that we just came out of, in Philippians Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest, and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. That Paul was confident that the life he had now lived in persecution was for the betterment. Why? Because it had been made known to the entire empire,ment God, and the rest. What was the rest here? It was the kings that made up Rome. Paul was set aside by God for the specific calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. But specifically the first two. Then it leaves the question, why Barnabas? Like, what about Barnabas? We don't know nothing about his story other than he is the guy that, as we already read in Acts eleven twenty-five 25 through 26, that went and got him from Tarsus, brought him to Antioch so that he could aid the church and teach the church of Antioch. So maybe that's the reason Barnabas is joining him, because this is who Barnabas is. He's just a, a guy on mission seeking to make much of Jesus. Or... Anybody remember where Barnabas was from? Take a look back in verse. No, it doesn't tell you. I'm sorry. I read it to you, though. Barnabas is from Cyprus. And when you look at verse 4, it says, So being sent out of the Holy Spirit, they went down to Caesarea, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So we don't know why Barnabas is the one that goes with Paul. Maybe it's just because there's a bond there, a commonality there, a mission that they're seeking to do together. Or it could just be very practical in the sense that Barnabas is from Cyprus. And Paul's first calling is to go to Cyprus. So why not take the guy from Cyprus with you that knows the area and knows the people and knows the region and all of those things. We don't know why God did what he did. But what we do know is that God made it clear to these men in this moment that it was a calling on the life of Barnabas and Paul to go and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, beginning with Cyprus. Now, in my preparation, I read commentaries often, and one commentator says this, and I just find it very helpful, and he says this, So here we have a first piece of planned overseas missions, Carry it out by the representatives of a particular church rather than a solitary individual, and began by a deliberate church inspired by the Holy Spirit, rather, somewhat of a casual as a result of persecution. And what he's trying to unpack here is that in chapter 1 through chapter 12, we see a lot of people doing their own thing. And we see a lot of people leaving Jerusalem because of persecution. And God certainly worked and moved in the life of the people in those moments. And he accomplished amazing and great things. But this is the first moment in the book of Acts. And there could have been other moments that happened that we're just not aware of. But this is the first moment in the book of Acts where a particular church sets aside two individuals to go across the sea to make known Jesus that this was an intentional effort of the Spirit of God leading the leadership of God to proclaim the gospel to those that were unreached with it. This is the first overseas missions as we see in the New Testament. And that is very, very significant. But in this, what I want us to see very plain and clearly is that this is the commissioning of the Holy Spirit on the life of Paul and Barnabas to go and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can't read these verses and think that it was some leadership outside of the Spirit that led to this. This is what God was doing, and he was setting them aside, and he did so by using men, yes, as we're about to see, but primarily by the leadership of the Spirit on the life of the leadership of the church. So they were commissioned first and foremost by the Spirit of God. Second, though, when you look at verse 3, we see the commissioning of the Barnabas and Paul by the church leaders and the church. Now, we're going to really just see the church leaders here. I think the church is implied in later verses. But what we see in verse 3, it says this, Then after fasting and praying... They laid their hands on them and they sent them off. There's something so amazing in this very simple verse. That after receiving the prompting of the Spirit to set these two men apart, the leaders of the church spent even more time in fasting and prayer over the matter. Yes, the Spirit made it clear what they were to do. And it's not that they were hesitant, and it's not that they lacked faith. It's that they wanted to be sure that this was what God was calling them to do in this moment. And so what do they do? They spend even more time in fasting and praying together. This wasn't a simple task of, this is what the Spirit says, so let's go and you go now. This, was a, this is what the Spirit was saying, so let's make sure that we're aligned with God in the way in which we should be. But there's certainly a second component to this same thing because we see this idea of laying their hands on them and sending them out. It's not only making sure in which that they were following the leadership of the spirit, but they were also praying for these men as they were sending them out. That they laid their hands on them, they prayed over them, they were pouring out to the Father on their behalf in which what they were about to go do, because they saw this as a serious matter. I mean, only 40 verses before, we see that Peter is imprisoned for the proclamation of the gospel. And right before that, we see two individuals giving their life for the proclamation of the gospel. The church of Antioch may not have been in Jerusalem, but they knew the severity of this situation and that if this was not the work of the Spirit in the life of Barnabas and Paul, and if God was not going before them, then they would be insignificant in the mission in which they were be going for. So the leadership of the church is fasting and praying even more, laying the hands on them, praying over them, and they send them out. We see this commissioning by the church leaders because the word they are still pointing back to the men that they mentioned before in the grammatical aspect of all of this. But I would want to note in chapter 14 of Acts, in verse 26 and 28, 26 through 28, it says that from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended. To the grace of God for the work of, that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened the doors of the faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas, after their mission had been fulfilled for this particular moment, they go back to the church of Antioch and they report to them what all God had done in their life. Why would they do that? It's because certainly, yes, this was a commissioning and a praying and a sending out by the church leaders. But this would have been done by the support and the prayer and the efforts of the members of the church as well. They wouldn't have been inactive bystanders in this circumstance. They would have been actively praying for and seeking out the leadership of God for Barnabas and Paul as they were on mission. They would have earnestly been praying and fasting and encouraging in all certain kind of ways and financially supporting these men to do this work. So certainly we see a top-down leadership of the commissioning, but this was an active involvement of the church as well. So Barnabas and Paul were commissioned not only by the Spirit of God, but by the church leaders and the church itself. And then finally, in verse 4, and this is going to be very brief, because we're going to look at this more next week. It says, and so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, if Luke had not been clear, he wanted to make sure he was even more clear. And just some hermeneutical principles here. When you're reading Scripture and you see concepts repeated, you should pay attention to those concepts. And one of those concepts is the Spirit of God sent them out. Okay, So the, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cecilia, And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Now, Sicilia was 16 miles from Antioch. And it served as a port for the city, even though it was not on a body of water. Really weird setup there. But I guess it, it's kind of where the porting process started. And so they they went to... Uh, Sicilia, and from there, they traveled down to Barnabas' hometown of Cyprus. I believe that was probably a heavy reason in which Barnabas was joining Paul on this particular mission. Because what we actually see after this is that Barnabas and Paul split up because of John Mark and some disagreements there. And so we see a particular moment in the life of Paul where God gave him Barnabas to go alongside him, where it did not continue until the end of his life. Okay. So with all that being said, what we see in this is a very plain, simple principle is the obedience to the commissioning. We see a commissioning of the Spirit. We see a commissioning of the church leaders and the church itself. And then we see this obedience put into practice. And we're going to see that obedience unpacked. But as we get into 4 through 12, we're going to see more of what's going on in Cyprus in what God was doing, so I wanted to focus on the obedience in this right here, because I think that as we approach this text and we ask ourselves about some applications to it, I really want to look at two things. Okay, I want to look at some minor implications of the text for us as individuals, and then I just want to speak to why Redeemer was planted and why things are important to us and me particular as the planter of Redeemer and one of the main elders of the church. Okay. But I think first and foremost some very minor implications is that there should be an expectancy or you guys, I'll just say this differently, you as members of Redeemer should expect the leadership of Redeemer to worship fast and pray together in seeking the Lord's leadership over matters of the church. And so there's an opportunity here for you to know that you can approach me and David. And soon, and at some point, Nick will be an elder. He's an elder in candidate training now. But you can approach David and I at any time and say, what are you guys praying about right now? When's the last time you fasted together over a particular area of the church's life? It's perfectly fine to approach us in that manner because that is something I think the Scripture makes clear in here is that the leadership of the church took the mission of God seriously enough to surrender all things that they counted valuable to show dependency upon God's leadership in their life. But from there, I think a more personal matter is there is an emphasis on fasting here. Not, Not all of us are the church leadership here. But there's still an emphasis on fasting here. And I want to be clear, is that in the New Testament, we see no particular command of Jesus or the people of God that says you must fast. Nowhere. Nowhere will you see it that I'm aware of. But when you read Matthew chapter 6, 6 through 18, it says this. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that when you receive, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's not an explicit command to go therefore and fast, right? We see a command to pray earnestly pray without ceasing, to be in the word, to commit also to the preaching of the word, to praying together, to worshiping together, to encouraging together, to weep with those who weep. We see a lot of explicit, direct commands. But this one's I'm not aware of. But I want you to just notice the first four words there. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, and when you fast. There's an implication there that the people of God will commit to fasting at some point or another in their life. And so that when they were to fast, they should do it in a particular way. Fasting is simply us as individuals submitting the body to Christ, to God, and saying, my dependency is not on fleshly things, but upon God himself to guide me and to lead me. But coming alongside that of fasting, you have to accompany it with prayer because the point of fasting is to cause you to be closer to the Father, and the primary way you do that is by committing to prayer. And then the final thing that we see is an implication here, and this one is hard, because there's a lot of doubt in our hearts at times, but we ought to submit to the guidance of the Spirit. And oftentimes when I realized the Spirit was prompting me to do something and I was disobedient, was really after the fact that I recognized, hey, I should have done that. God was doing something in that moment. But I think for that, it's a simple prayer that we would be prepared for God to guide us through His Spirit to do something in our day-to-day lives. I think the number one way we see a prompting of the Spirit and the leadership of the Spirit is in gospel conversations with those around us. Now finally, I want to read some verses in Romans. And this is kind of why Redeemer was planted and kind of my heart and my desire as I read these four verses after looking at the the meaning and some implications of it. This is just, I think, an important passage for the life of Redeemer. Because in Romans chapter 10, verse 12 through 15, it says for there is no distinct between Jew and Greek Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the richest who calls on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So often we think of preaching in this context as what I'm doing here. But when he's talking about preaching here, he's talking about the proclamation of the Word of God, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, the proclamation of the gospel in everyday life. And so what he's getting here is that for someone to believe in Jesus, they are to hear of him. And how are they to hear of him? By someone preaching to him. And how is someone going to preach to them if they hear sent to preach to them? This is why last Sunday we made an emphasis of looking at discipleship after we, after we had a meal together. This is why it's a priority for us at Redeemer to make much of Jesus or to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and resting in Jesus. This is why we exist. We exist to equip those who make Columbus and the surrounding area their forever home to proclaim the gospel and make disciples here and now. We exist to equip those who God has sent through the Air Force to proclaim the gospel and make disciples at Columbus Air Force Base. And that as they are commissioned, as they are called elsewhere and sent out by the United States Air Force at their expense, we as a church would commission them out to do the same thing wherever God would be sending them. So wherever Micah ends up in several months or whenever the Lord would have, that we would commission him to go and do that. And in February, when Aaron ends up in South Alabama and the small area there that's smaller than Columbus, that he would be commissioned out to proclaim the gospel at Fort Rucker. Thank you. That this would be our calling as a church to not only equip them to do it here and now, but prepare them and commission them out. Because we can take and we can over-spiritualize all of the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas because it was the early church to the ends of the earth. But it's no different for us today. God is commissioning each and every one of us every Sunday and in every moment of our life to be people that proclaim the gospel. And for some, that's everyday normal lives. And for others, that's particular callings to do that in particular areas, in particular moments, just like Paul and Barnabas in here. But for most of us, it's by doing it in our day-to-day lives. But we also exist, and this is the one that we fell out, fell out the most, to equip those who attend MUW to proclaim the gospel and make disciples here in Columbus while they live here and then commission them out to do so wherever God is going to use them next if they are to move away. That we exist to be the mission arm of the church, to commission men and women to proclaim the gospel wherever God may send them. So as we look at the life of the Church of Antioch, I want us to seriously just reflect on two things, okay? One, how are we preparing the hands and feet of those to preach the gospel? And then two, how are you called to be commissioned? How are you called to go, therefore, and do? For all of us, it looks different. For me, it's through Redeemer in my day-to-day life, in Caledonia, at the post office, and various other forms of life. For some, it's their day-to-day life in the life of their children and in the life of their work and the life of volunteer efforts or in the life of interacting with friends. For some, it's through college or your career. But for others, it could be a calling to surrender and commit to ministry or to particular missions or whatever it may be. Submit to the guidance of the Spirit and look for a body of believers that can confirm that in you. So if you feel a particular calling in your life, approach the leadership of the church so that they then can do the same thing that these leaders did in committing to fasting and praying together to ensure that the Spirit is actually doing something particular in the life of that person. So this morning... As Nick comes, I'll end with the two simple questions I just asked, and it is this.